Want to modernize your veterinary practice by offering virtual care to pet owners? You can do that with Medici. The Veterinarian Success Podcast is sponsored by Medici. That's M-E-D-I-C-I. Medici is a telehealth solution built for veterinarians and physicians. Visit medici.md backslash vets or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. Hi, this is Dr. Aaron Smiley, and I've offered telemedicine to my clients since I started practice. In 2017, I integrated paid telemedicine with Medici. Medici lets you text, call, and video chat with clients with their easy-to-use app, send and receive images and videos of pets, stay VCPR compliant, and get paid for delivering convenient care right from your phone. Ready to go virtual? Visit medici.md backslash vets. That's M-E-D-I-C-I dot M-D backslash V-E-T-S or call 512-967-6454 to learn more. With that, let's dive into the show. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Tierra Price, who is a recent graduate of Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine, where she served as the vice president of her class and president of the Women's Veterinary Development Leadership Initiative. She's currently a community medicine veterinarian in Los Angeles, California, and has certainly a, a wide variety of veterinary interests, which we'll get into as well. As a student in 2018, Dr. Price founded the Black DVM Network, a community that connects Black veterinary professionals for mentorship and advancing veterinary medicine. So with all of that, Dr. Price, thanks for joining me this morning. Yes, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. And I did say this morning versus today, just from the standpoint of we're recording this early for her out in the West Coast, and I'm greatly, greatly appreciative of that. So with that, why, I guess, veterinary medicine for you initially, and what was your exposure to the profession? Because we're going to get into kind of just the diversity or lack of diversity in veterinary medicine, kind of your experiences and what you're doing to work and help on that. So I'm just curious, like from the beginning, your journey, your story into veterinary medicine. Yeah. So I wanted a pet so badly. I wanted a hamster, a gerbil, a dog, a cat, anything. And my mom, she's afraid of animals. So she would say no. And I mean, I would write my persuasive letters and opinion pieces (laughs) throughout school, like on the topic of why Tiara should get a pet. And so my mom finally said, Hey, I'm not getting you anything other than fish which I had a lot of fish and thank God I'm not an aquatic vet because (laughs) those fish didn't live to tell the story. But she said, you can go to the animal shelter and see all the animals you want all day long. And then you can come home and then you can go back and do it again. And so my uncle was actually a part of animal control. And so he was a dog catcher. (laughs) That's how I knew him when I was younger, was that he was a dog catcher. And so he had some connections with our local animal shelter. And I was able to start volunteering and shadowing there when I was about 12. And so really, I was just interested in animals. I had known that I wanted to be a veterinarian. I had dressed up for career day when I was six as a veterinarian, but I didn't really know what it meant. And so being at the shelter and working on the animal care side and then working on the veterinary care side of the shelter, I got a better look at veterinary medicine. And that was when I really said, this is exactly what I want to do. And so that kind of never wavered as you went through junior high, high school, college, and you just kind of kept working towards that? Yeah. And funny enough, it never wavered. And it's funny because I did pretty well throughout high school and college and survived veterinary school, but I was never someone that was super excited about school. I think 
that what drove me through school was the fact that I knew I needed to do certain things to become a veterinarian. And every time they brought up other career options, I would just think to myself, man, I would never want to do that. Like about everything. <laughs> and there are a couple things now that I look back and I'm thinking, what? man, I could have done that. But veterinary medicine was always the strongest passion of mine because it just seems so fun and it seems so exciting and it never died down. The more I knew, the more I loved it. So did you have like a career counselor or something in high school that you take the test, they tell you that these are the careers or something that you should kind of focus on? Yeah, actually everyone thought I was going to be a teacher and I always would come out with teacher or like psychologist slash social worker. And I never understood those. I taught dance for a little while. So maybe I do have some teacher qualities, but Looking back, especially in 2020, I'm really happy that I'm not a teacher. <laughs> I think the psychology and teacher, I mean, you could certainly fold those into veterinary medicine. Like those are important skill sets to explain and educate clients that come in and understanding like the impact of that emotional connection, whether it's people or people and their pets. So I think there's a lot there. I was supposed to be a museum director, which I did not end up being. So <laughs> that was fun too. Yeah. It's like, hey, this guy likes history. Sure. Go be a museum director. I'm like, that seems like pretty specific as far as what I could do long term. I don't think I ever was given that career choice, but you're right. I think that being a veterinarian, I do feel like somewhat of a teacher most days. (laughs) And I do feel like somewhat of a therapist or a psychologist most days. So it definitely ties in and I guess those qualities were there when I was in high school, or at least when I was choosing like CCCCC on the 100 question assessment. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about your experience while in vet school. And one of the things that we were able to chat on a little bit in our pre-call and just getting to know each other prior to hitting record, we talked about the diversity in vet school is not great. And part of that you mentioned was like the admissions standards and some of the different things that are required. You care to kind of share A, your story, and then B, what you've seen and kind of learned since why there's just not a lot of diversity and who gets accepted, I guess, is the question. So I went from high school to undergrad to vet school. So it was always vet school admissions were always on my mind. That's what I was looking at when I was in high school. What do I need to do in college to get into vet school? When I was in college, I was picking classes based on vet school admission. So I think that's mainly everyone's focus when you're trying to get into vet school is what is this process and how do I get in? My first experience in college, I was in the honors program at UConn. So I was given one advisor and he was the only animal science honors advisor that served the honors animal science community. So I was given him and I didn't have any option to switch. And so On our first meeting, he said, you can do whatever you want to do. Dream as big as you want. I'm here to help. And so I said, great. I got a B in biology my first semester. And he said, I think you should reconsider that school. Hmm. And I said, oh, wait, why? What happened? And he said, you got a B in biology. You're not going to get into vet school with that. And so I said, oh, that's silly. I just kind of ignored it because I really was so confused. I thought... Maybe he's joking about something. And in the subsequent, like in the following semesters, that's what he continued to say to me. Every time I got anything less than an A, it was, you need to reconsider, you need to reconsider. And so by my junior year, he had almost refused to write me recommendations and to talk to me about veterinary school unless I presented him with a plan B for if I didn't get into veterinary school. Hmm. And so I said, well, I don't have a plan B. 
I don't really want to think about a plan B right now because I'm planning on going to veterinary school. And so it was a really hard time for me. I left his office by my junior year. I left his office every time crying, tried to switch. I could not switch. For admissions, it was required that I had an advisor recommendation. He was my advisor. I couldn't get any other advisor to write me a recommendation. I got into vet school, so I can't speak on what the recommendation may have said, but I was very, very scared to ask for a recommendation and get that submitted with my vet school application. So in that moment, I wasn't really thinking about diversity and the lack of diversity. I just thought that I had a really terrible advisor. And a lot of other people said that their advisors weren't so great. So I just thought maybe it's just this process. But my senior year, I looked around my animal science classes and I was like, wow, there really are not many Black students. I think in the entire like college for that graduating class of 2016, there were about eight of us. And I think the college was maybe about 200 or 250 students. And then out of the eight of us, I was the only one that got into veterinary school that year. And so everyone else was talking about vet school and where they were going. And I think maybe 20, 20 or 30% of that entire class ended up applying to vet school. It was a small number anyway, because vet school is hard to get into, but there was no diversity, none, nothing at all. And so going into veterinary school, that wasn't really on my mind, but it seemed to be amplified. So I get into veterinary school and I go to Virginia Tech. I'm in Blacksburg, Virginia. And that was a culture shock from Louisville, Kentucky, and from stores, Connecticut, which are both more diverse than Blacksburg, Virginia. And so that hit me pretty hard because I was so used to compensating the lack of diversity in the classroom with the diversity in my outside environment. So being in Blacksburg compounded the lack of diversity that was in my vet school class because then I really felt like I had no one to go to. I felt completely isolated. I was in the mountains. I was four and a half hours away from the next biggest airport, which I call, you know, the next pulse. There was nothing. And so I started to look around and I started thinking, what is going on? I mean, I know that there aren't a lot of black veterinarians. I hadn't really met that many in my journey to that school, but I was thinking this can't be real. And why is this happening? And so the people in academic affairs at Virginia Tech are actually very passionate about diversity and veterinary medicine and very passionate about the barriers that cause that lack of diversity. And so I talked to them and they brought up some really good points about how they were adjusting their curriculum and how they were adjusting their admissions process to allow more diverse candidates. And so some of the things that they talked about were reducing the number of experience or animal hours required to get into veterinary school because there had been a study somewhere that I still haven't found to properly reference, but a study saying that students with zero to 10 hours performed no differently than students with 500 to 600 hours of animal experience in veterinary school. So if your students are performing the same and they come out the same caliber of veterinarian, why is that a requirement for admission to veterinary school? And really, when you break that down, what that looks like is it's easier for someone who grows up with a rural background, who has access to veterinary care, who knows veterinarians to gain that experience and get into that school than it is for someone who maybe lives in a more urban environment, lives in a neighborhood that doesn't have access to veterinary care, who doesn't know a veterinarian, or who has to spend their time doing more important things 
than volunteering at an animal clinic. So not everyone can sacrifice that time to volunteer. Some people might need to work to survive, which I think most of us know. So those are just some of the barriers that select for certain people to matriculate into veterinary school versus others. And I think a lot of people like to look at who applied and who got in and, okay, well, if we don't have anybody from a diverse background applying, then how can they get into vet school? Well, I'm not going to waste my time and my money because it costs probably at least $500 to apply to veterinary school when you get done with the VIMCAS and the application fees and the traveling and stuff. It costs that much money to even apply. And so if I'm looking at the requirements and I don't meet the requirements, why would I waste that money on even applying? So you're blocking out diverse candidates from the start. And I think that all of this talk about diversity in veterinary medicine and the lack thereof, and it's been so obvious to me for the last five or six years. And I think that the lack of technology, the lack of innovation, the lack of creativity and originality and the way veterinary medicine has progressed and the way other fields have progressed really, really, really show the lack of diversity in vet med. And that's why they're not progressing because we're admitting the same people into the profession and we're creating a culture that is so traditional that you don't want to change because you become exiled for being different or for not wanting that change. I was actually listening to a podcast yesterday and the lady was talking about the audiences that she chooses to speak to. And this is no lie. She said this and I was like, man, my feelings are hurt. She said, I will choose to talk to the fitness industry over people in agriculture because people in agriculture are not usually change agents. They're not usually people that are willing to change. And there's no point in me speaking to them because they're not going to be able to actually absorb my material. And I thought about it and it's so true. Like our industry is so resistant to change sometimes. And I think that we're really seeing that. And that's why there's so much opportunity for things to be developed because we've missed out on so many years of innovation, probably due to our severe lack of diversity. Thank you for that. That's, yeah, a lot of different pieces and areas to go down. I guess the first one is as you've met and had conversations with other peers now that either you were in med school at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg and you made those relationships over time, or now that you are out and working in the field, did other people get the, hey, you need to make a plan B, your grades were here? Like, was that something that you've heard that was often discussed or was it more or less something you felt like maybe it was just trying to steer you in a different direction? And I don't know the advisor or any of the motivations there, but is that something you hear other times? Because that stuck out to me like this plan B. Because if you had basically dedicated and said, you know what, I've burned all the ships. I'm going all in on veterinary medicine. I'm either doing this or I'm doing nothing else. To me, you would think you'd want to encourage that person to say, you know what, you got to be, but if you want to do this, let's go. Like you have to get your grades up because I want to make sure you get accepted versus trying to give you a way to get out of it and keep showing that and like dangling this like, oh, here's the exit door. Here's the exit door. Right. So I do think that a lot of people are told to have a plan B because veterinary school is so hard to get into. And most people will apply two or three times. That's a normal thing for you to apply two or three times to get into veterinary school. So I think that having a plan B is not a bad idea. So if anyone's listening, maybe have a plan B. But I do think that implicit bias tells us that certain people need a plan B more than others. 
And so I think that for some people, it's stressed a little bit more to have a plan B because yeah, if I had someone that I say, Hey, you need a plan B and they ignore that, then okay, we'll move forward with your plan A. And then if your plan A fails and you come to me crying because you don't have a plan B, then I can say, well, that's why I told you to have a plan B. But to completely steer someone in the opposite direction, especially since my grades weren't that bad. That's the thing that I can't get over is that <laughs> because I made a B. <laughs> and again, like I said, it's that culture that it's wrapped up in so many different ways. That culture of being perfect, of having a 4.0 type A. So not only are we selecting for maybe a less diverse looking group of people, but we're also selecting for a less diverse group of personalities, right? Telling people that you have to be perfect to get into that school. When I talked with Peter Weinstein, and I'm not going to remember which episode it was, he talked about sometimes you are selecting for the best students versus the best veterinarians. And at the end of the day, you should be selecting for the best veterinarians. And that's not always the best students. And sometimes that gets lost. And if that was corrected, you'd start to see a lot of other changes as well. So that's interesting to hear that from two different perspectives and angles. Yes. And I absolutely adore Peter. He's also here in Southern California. So yes, I'm so glad that he mentioned that because I think that it's true. And when we're talking about diversity, this movement has us focused on maybe Black lives or the lack of Black people in veterinary medicine. But diversity and inclusion, I mean, that is surrounding every single part of who we are. So personality-wise, how we grew up, where we grew up, socioeconomic status, all of the things. Yeah. And you talked about early on, like your exposure with your uncle and just being able to go and your mom encouraging you to go somewhere. And a lot of people don't get that. And one of my dear friends, I actually had him on the podcast talking about kind of a financial related topic, but Tyrone Ross, I mean, he's in the financial services industry doing great things. And as a black male, like he's experienced a lot of things because I think it's very similar financial services and veterinary medicine where there's a big lack of diversity. And just hearing his stories, like just having exposure that this could be a career for you is so important. And he was able to see that growing up. And he's like, I have so many friends and peers that could have done fantastic work in this space, but they never thought, hey, I could actually do that. They were never shown this could be a path for a great career. And it's just really interesting to hear that because with me, same thing. I didn't have anyone in my family that worked in what I do. I came from agricultural, you know, rural Indiana. That was where I came from, but it was just something that I wanted to do. And I had people that encouraged me, hey, go do this. So it is interesting to see it is a lot of the people in your life that can encourage you, but it's also just seen as a career opportunity. Yeah. And I think that I was so lucky to have that in because I later on, after I had gotten a lot of shelter experience, decided well, I need some private practice experience. I need to diversify my experiences for my vet school application. And I walked into 25, 30 veterinary practices in Louisville, Kentucky with my resume. And I'm like, hey, I'm a student. I'm trying to get into veterinary school. I just would like to shadow for maybe a couple of weeks. And I couldn't get into a single one. The only veterinary clinics I got into were the ones that were word of mouth. And so my dad has a friend who is a lawyer and a veterinarian. And he ended up getting me into his clinic. But that's a huge barrier for a lot of people. And again, it becomes the handpicking the next generation of veterinarians because they're your cousin's brother's friend who you trust to come into your clinic. So we talked about in the top, switching gears just a little bit, but I have a feeling I kind of know why you started the Black DVM Network while in school. But can you kind of explain what drove you to that, what you've seen, experiences, all that good stuff? 
Yeah. So Black DVM Network, again, came up because I felt really isolated in Blacksburg, Virginia. And I kind of went through a period where I knew that I loved veterinary medicine, but I wasn't sure that I loved the people that I was going to be working with or the people that I was surrounding myself with. And I felt like I didn't belong in veterinary medicine as a profession. And so I was wondering to myself, am I going to be miserable because I love what I'm doing, but I don't feel a part of this profession, like as a career. And so it was really tough for me because like I said, I love the medicine part. I loved the actual work, but on a personal level, not being able to truly, truly connect with people or find people that can relate to you or constantly experiencing those microaggressions was really weighing on me. So I was thinking, are there any other veterinarians that are vaguely similar to me that listen to the same music as me that like the same activities as me? And the other funny thing about being black in veterinary medicine is that because we're such a small subset of the veterinary medicine profession, we are a much smaller subset of the black population. So whereas some other People in my family wanted to be lawyers and wanted to be doctors and wanted to own fashion stores and do all kinds of other things. I was always looked at as being really strange for wanting to take care of animals, right? Like, why are you pursuing so heavily this career that is probably not going to give you much return on investment? Like, what are you doing? And so you kind of end up in this middle space identity crisis where you know, you can't talk to your family about veterinary medicine. I told you my mom, like she's afraid of everything. And then you are in school and you don't really have anyone to talk to either. So I was just putting feelers out there to see if there was anybody else out there that I could relate to. And so I started an Instagram page because I had seen some other Instagram pages like the Black Doctors Lounge or Black Nurses. And I said, well, we can do this for Black veterinarians. I'm not sure why I didn't name it Black Veterinarians, but probably because that's maybe too long of an Instagram name. So Black DVM Network kind of came up and a lot of people thought it was a really silly name for a long time, (laughs) but I think it's kind of worn on everybody. So it started as an Instagram page and I would just find Black Veterinary students, Black Veterinarians through hashtags or through people. I did know some Black Veterinary students from some programs that I had done and So I would feature them and highlight them. And then I started to receive DMs and messages from other students like, hey, can you post this photo of me and my friends and my colleagues? And I said, yeah, sure. And I did the same for technicians. And so it really became a page for people to see other people that looked like them in the profession. But from there, I started to receive other messages that were really disturbing about being discriminated against, about feeling lonely, about not having any resources. And about clients that wanted black doctors. And so I said, well, we can develop this out a little bit further. And so I started the directory at some point in 2019. And that was for clients and students to find black doctors. So black veterinarians could put their name and technicians could put their name on our map and it would pop up. And so that's when the website was created. And then we just started to develop it out from there like after talking to people and seeing what they wanted. And so now we have a membership model where people can become members of Black DVM Network and have access to, one, the network of veterinarians that we have and veterinarians, technicians, and students, and then access to events and webinars. We have a forum where people can share information, talk to each other, 
the website works a little bit like a social media site. So people can create a profile and find other veterinarians. And then now with the exposure Black DVM Network has gotten, it's easy for people to send me information to share with our group. We probably have about 200 members now. And so we're hoping to grow and expand, but we're really trying to empower Black veterinarians and technicians and students to be the best that they can. So so yeah, so coming from just feeling isolated and lonely and bringing that to a larger stage helped me to identify people that were going through the same things as me and needed the same help and resources. And so we took it from there. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And it's always cool when you can utilize technology to connect people. You don't have to be neighbors. And there's a lot of issues with social media and technology, but there's a lot of beautiful things that you can do with it. And I think that's a great case in point of what that can do. You kind of mentioned it and I saw this conversation come up in the vet partners. They had a diversity and inclusion like panel and a discussion, but you mentioned microaggressions. Can you explain what that is and what you kind of went through? I think just putting it on the radar, because like for me, when I heard that first, I'm like, I don't really know what that means. Yeah. So, oh man, microaggressions. I don't even know where to start. So it's kind of funny that they're called microaggressions because they're one of the most frustrating things for me. And they are small, but such a big impact on people. So I probably am not going to define this term like... Okay, it's whatever your definition is. <laughs> properly. But for me, the microaggressions are the things that people say, whether they mean to or not, that bring attention to the fact that I don't fit in with the group that I am in. So for me, a lot of times microaggressions about hair all the time. In vet school, it was like every day for probably the first two years until I finally said, hey, I'm not going to answer any more questions about my hair. And so the hair one, I'll try to explain, is very interesting because a lot of people will say things about my hair because they like it, because it's different. They're giving compliments. Other people will want to touch it or it smells nice, you know, just kind of all of these weird, close to like fetish things that don't really matter. But in a group of people that don't look like me and don't have hair like me, it just constantly points to the fact that I'm different. And it is me constantly answering questions. And so to go into veterinary school and to go to class every day and to have to just engage in conversation about my hair <laughs> when no one else no one else is talking about anyone else's hair. I mean, we have people in our class that had blue hair, purple hair, hair that was like sometimes braided, hair that was sometimes whatever. And it was only my hair that people had questions about, right? So if I wore it in a bun, they're like, oh my goodness, how did you get all of your hair up there? If I wore it out, they're like, oh my goodness, it's so big. It's so soft. Can I touch it? It's so curly. I just love it. I wish my hair was like that. If I wore it in two braids, oh my goodness, how did you get your hair in two braids? I'm like, I get my hair in two braids just like anyone else there in two braids. And so things like that. And a lot of people, you know, will feel like that's so what? Who cares? People ask about your hair. They're complimenting you. I don't know why you're complaining about that. But it's draining because it really creates like a complex. Because I know that every single day that I come in, someone's going to ask about my hair. Like, how should I do my hair this morning? So that no one asks about it. It doesn't matter how I do my hair because someone's going to ask about it every single time. And it's really not something that people in the majority can understand. So if whatever characteristics someone's talking about, 
with a microaggression, whether it's your name or your skin color or your hair or how tall you are, how short you are, how skinny you are. If you fall into the majority category, you'll never understand the impact that that has on someone. So for example, I've always grown up at like a weight that people would say is maybe not too skinny. I've never been called super skinny and I've never been called fat. So if someone were to call me skinny or fat, I would be like, oh, okay. It probably wouldn't really bother me that much. If people were telling me I was skinny every day, I probably would not care at all. Like, oh, thanks, 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 you know? But someone who grows up seemingly underweight or skinny, skinnier than most people, they don't want to hear that every day. And you'll hear that from people that they say like, yes, I'm skinny and I don't try to be like this. This is just me. And every time someone brings it up, they're bringing attention to the fact that I'm different than everyone else. And so that's kind of, you know, along the same idea of microaggressions, it happens with names. So my name is Tiara. Most people do fine with my names. If someone mispronounces it, it doesn't really bother me. But I know that if I had a name that was different than this or more difficult, less of what people have seen before, then it would probably bother me a little bit more. I'm trying to think of other microaggressions that people say. I mean, Another one about skin color and stuff like that, there are so many like in the summertime, like the transition into summer and the transition out of summer, you'll always have people that are like, oh, look, I'm almost as dark as you or, oh, look, I'm almost as tan as you. I'm, you know, comparing their tan off of me (laughs) and that's weird. And so there are things like that. And then there are the other microaggressions that say if two people in the class are angry and one is a white male and the other is a black female, everyone perceives the black female as much angrier and much more aggressive. And like, oh, did you see so-and-so? She was mad today and it was scary. But most men can get upset. And unless they're flipping a table, it's not really scary. They're just like, oh, I think he's upset about something. So those are the microaggressions that no one's really saying anything that's like just so outwardly racist, but it shows all of these biases that they have. And so that takes a toll on anyone that identifies in a minority like group. So anything that's different than the majority or different than what's considered quote unquote normal. Yeah. Thanks for that overview. And I think everyone can hear that and be like, oh yeah, I'm sure there's been a time where (laughs) there's been a comment made. I, I was sitting here listening like, yeah, I'm sure I've made comments that came across a certain way that certainly were not meant to be that way. But yeah, words are obviously extremely powerful and how you say things can be a big difference. So yeah, just trying to be thoughtful around that. And again, I think that's part of a lot of the conversations and why this conversation is important. Like, let's just understand how we can just be better to each other. And if we can all be friendlier, we can take care of each other better. We'll be in a heck of a better spot in the next 5, 10, 20 years. So it's all part of just trying to get better and be cognizant of what we can be doing to improve. Yeah. I appreciate that overview. One of the questions, and this is super open-ended, so you can take it any way you want, but from a community perspective in veterinary medicine, like what would you like to see more of? And maybe what can people continue to do to improve to help not have this title of the least diverse healthcare profession, right? So I think that's the key thing there. So I think that there are so many things happening in veterinary medicine right now that are moving towards a better future. And I'm so happy about that. But one of the things that is starting to stand out to me is that we still need a lot of education around diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
and what that means and what it does not mean. So for example, and people do this with such good intention, such good intention. They reach out to Black DVM Network about their DEI initiatives. And I tell them, I am not a DEI expert. I had my experience and we built this community off of it. We can definitely find you someone that is passionate about DEI, but Black DVM Network's goal is to empower our Black veterinarians to support them. Because what DEI initiatives usually look like are, why are we the least diverse? Let's bring in more diversity. But then who are we forgetting about? We're forgetting about the 2% of people that are currently in this profession that are not being supported. And that falls through the cracks every time, which is why I'm so passionate about Black DVM Network serving the purpose to empower and support Black veterinary professionals. Because the DEI initiatives drop you off at vet school, they get you into vet school, and then they leave you alone. And so right now people are asking, you know, why don't we have diverse leadership in ABMA? Why don't we have diverse leadership on state boards? Why don't we have Black practice owners? Well, we do have Black practice owners. Don't let me misspeak, but why are they not visible and this and this and this and that? And you're not supporting those people. Every single time we want to go to the kindergarten class and tell the kindergartners about veterinary medicine and then carry them all the way up through. So that's one thing. We have to support the professionals that we currently have. The other thing loops back around to what I was saying about diversity, equity, and inclusion which is everything that you do should not be the majority and the minority. Inclusion is about integrating those. And so I'm so passionate about seamlessly integrating diversity, equity, and inclusion into our profession to the point where we're constantly pursuing DEI, but we're not constantly separating it out from everything. So for example... I invited a group to host topic rounds with Black DVM Network because I think that they have a special interest. They're a specialty. And I think that they could provide a lot of good content to Black DVM Network. So I said, do you guys have someone that you would like to have host topic rounds with us? Are you, would you guys be interested in that? The president of that group came back to me and said, oh, let me refer you to so-and-so who is heading up our DEI efforts. Topic rounds and medicine is not a DEI effort, but because you're working with a group that supports Black veterinarians, that's the category that you throw it in. So Black veterinarians are constantly being looked at as DEI initiatives instead of the amazing doctors that they are. I mean, I'm so passionate about it. I talk about it every time. If you ask me for a Black veterinarian and I ask you, well, what do you want them to talk about? We want them to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm going to tell you, no, you can find your own. I'll give you a black dermatologist that can talk about dermatology. I'll give you a black surgeon that can talk about surgery. I'll give you a black DVM JD that can talk about veterinary policy and law. But every single time to take this group of people and put them into a DEI, I mean, for me, it just, we kind of, are continuing, right? Majority, minority, majority. We're continuing to separate that out. Now, DEI definitely means having this type of conversation. What are the barriers? What are people's experiences? How did you overcome that? That's definitely a step towards a DEI effort. But if I say, hey, can we talk about finance one day? If you tell me that you need to contact your DEI task force... (laughs) 
Yeah. You know, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. That's like me saying, if you reach out to me and say, oh, hey, let's do this podcast. And I say, okay, hold on. Let me contact my interstate commerce because you're from somewhere else. You know, like, I mean, it just brings this, <laughs> this whole idea that is really not relevant. And so we have to be so intentional and we have to realize what are we actually doing with DEI? What is DEI and what is it not? And when do we just need to accept people into our profession, not to fill a quota, not because we're caught with our pants down in the middle of a social movement and now we're being called out. And so now we have to get all, you know, we need all this DEI efforts, not because of that, but because you truly want to accept people into this profession and you truly want that culture change. So yeah, that's one of the things that I really want to see. And that's one of the things that I'm hoping that Black DVM Network does. A lot of people see Black DVM Network as being divisive. And I see it as being a huge resource for people that are trying to be intentional about including Black veterinary professionals in whatever they're doing in veterinary medicine. Yeah, I think people just want to be included because they're really good at what they do from their day job. Like they're really smart. They really understand this. So if you want me to talk, like you talk, you want me to talk about dermatology and you have a panel, like just bring up really good people that are dermatologists. Like you don't need to have, well, this one has to be that. Just bring good people. Let them talk about what it is that they're a specialist in and don't put them in a position where all they get to talk about is, oh yeah, so you're black and in this profession. Can you talk about what that's like? No, I actually have 20 years of experience of doing this. Like, let me tell you all the things that I've learned and I can educate whoever about this topic. So yeah, I think that's super important. And candidly, like I wanted to have this podcast, have this conversation, but it almost felt like that way too. And I'm sure it felt like that for you. It's like, I'm reaching out because I want to have this podcast that's just on this topic. It's like, well, let's just have like a real honest, open conversation. And that again, is something that I appreciate of just being as candid as possible. Like just include people who are good at what they do, regardless whether black, white, purple, orange, green, and just let them go be good at what they do. So I appreciate that. So thank you. To be fair, there's not much else for me to talk about because I just graduated in May. So (laughs) I can't really talk about the medicine I practice or people might run away. Yeah, but you can share your experience. I think that's where when we chatted, it was like, oh, I just want to know like how you got to where you're at and what you've done. Because I do think starting a network and building a community is super important. And I think that whole aspect of why you did it is a really key point of continuing the discussion that's there. I know we're running up on time. There's certainly more that we could chat on and sometime we will. And hopefully sometime we can connect in person again, once this whole COVID thing is (laughs) behind us. But for those, and I think I know the answer already, but for those that want to connect, chat with you more, and hopefully they understand why they'd be reaching out to you in the first place. Now that we had this conversation, where would you send them? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Yes. So the website for Black DVM Network is www.blackdvmnetwork.com. We have contact form there. They can subscribe to our newsletter. We put out a monthly newsletter for everyone. And so that's members and non-members that people can stay abreast on what Black DVM Network is following, what we think is important. And we include some cool stuff in there. We have medicine in there, but we also have current events. So if you're just looking to stay in the know with what's happening in the world, maybe not what's actually being given to your television, but what's actually happening in the world, there's that. And so people can reach out there for contact or they can subscribe. But we also have Facebook page, Instagram, LinkedIn. So feel free to connect there. All of those pages are Black DVM Network. 
com. And like I said, if there are black veterinarians, technicians, students that would like to join, that can happen at the website. And if there are people that would like to share information with us or work with us in some capacity, the contact form on the website is the best place. We're always looking for people to talk about financial literacy, entrepreneurship, wellness, and professional development, and then, of course, medicine. So those are our five focus areas. We're always looking for people that want to share their expertise and give some tips and tricks and stuff like that. So I welcome everyone to reach out. Thank you so much for the time. I'll let you get on with your day, but this is really, really enjoyable. I think there's a lot that came from it. So thank you. Yes. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.